Beg your neighbors. Um, I live in the mean streets of South Ankeny and actually one of my neighbors got egged. So I take that a little personally. We've been on the lookout for eggers, but uh, egg your neighbors in the Cap City way. Invite your friends. Uh, Easter's gonna be great. It's, I cannot believe it's a month away. We at our house feel like it's just been Christmas and Christmas Eve and the spring has just flown by. I don't know if it's just that as you get a little bit older, time just goes so quickly, but I mean, you just watch everything around you. It seems to move so fast. And this is a great time for us to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And before that, we have a few more weeks to finish up a series on really following Jesus in the footsteps of faith one step at a time. I have to tell you, I'm super proud of you because I know that there are many of you in this service and also in our first service who are taking one step at a time. And almost every single week, um, we, we're just growing a little bit. We're moving a little bit further toward the people God wants us to be. We're changing. And I love it when you share your stories with me or with our staff and, and you let us know what God's doing in your life. Now, today I'm gonna talk to you about something that's so practical and so easy to do, but yet so challenging and so counterintuitive that by the end of the time, you're going to be faced with another decision. And the decision will be based on a question. And the question is very simple. The question is this, is this following Jesus enough to give your entire life to? Now keep in mind, you give your life to something. And if we come to the conclusion that this, this following Jesus is not enough to give our entire lives to, then the conclusion that we've reached is, is that I'm enough to give my entire life to. I don't like the way that sounds. So I want to encourage you to just continue in one step at a time as we move toward this decision to do something that will change your life and the lives of those around you very, very quickly, but also be very challenging and force us to live in a different way. I had a conversation with a new friend not too long ago and uh, he's single. And it's been a long time since I've been, been single, a long time. He asked me if I was dating and I said, no, my wife doesn't like that. Um, I bagged my limit 30 years, 32 years ago, however long it's been, December 30th, 1989. I take her out and show her off every once in a while, right? But no, I don't date around. And, and I said, do you date? He goes, oh yeah, I date online. And uh, he said, do you know about dating online? And I said, no, we dated in line. I had to wait in line to date Joy because she had so many people waiting to, to date her. And he said, no, I'm on, I'm on apps and I meet people. And I was like, look, tell me how that works. Now, in first service, there were a lot of people who were like, oh yeah, you know, and they're swiping right, right there in the middle of the service. Um, but I don't know how it works. And he goes, oh, it's super easy. You fill out these questionnaires. And I said, you tell the truth? And he goes, most of the time. And, and I said, uh, then what does it do? Well, an algorithm tells you who your soulmate is and matches and things. And some of you guys, you know what I'm talking about. And he said, I met this girl. Now he lives out, out west in the west part of town in an apartment complex. And he said, I met this girl, I met her online. And we wanted to get together. We wanted, because we matched. And I said, you mean on match.com? He goes, no, match. You don't call it .com. That means you don't know what you're doing. It's just match. I met her on match. And we, so we, we go back and forth and we message, we talk. And I said, what do you talk about? And he goes, well, we talk about life, but he goes, I'm gonna tell you this story. You're not gonna believe it. He said, I started complaining about my neighbor to this girl that I met, this, this uh, girl on match. And he said, I started talking about how she dated so many guys and how she'd come home stumbling around and you know, not able to find her own door and I couldn't believe the decisions she was making. And I said, oh yeah, well, what this girl you were you know, messaging, what'd she say? And, well, she made fun of my neighbor too. And he said, that's one of the things we talked about. And he goes, you'll never believe it. He said, I found out after about six weeks that the girl I didn't have time to meet, who was my perfect soul match, soulmate, the one I was complaining about, my neighbor too, ended up being his neighbor. 
They literally shared a wall in an apartment complex. She was the one he'd been complaining about. You follow me? And when they finally met, it wasn't pretty. Now, my point is, I thought that was a hilarious story because I've avoided all of that by having to actually see somebody face to face and ask the hard question, would you like to go out with me? Um, but uh, I, I started thinking about that. And I thought, you know, sometimes it seems so far away. But it's not, it's literally right next door. Sometimes it seems like it may be across the city, across the county, across the world. So far from us, not even relevant. But we realize that it's literally within arm's reach. Today, I'm going to be talking to you about something. And when I say the word, some of you are immediately going to go, oh, yeah, that's me. That, that describes me perfectly, Pastor. You're describing me to a T. Some of you are going to say, no, it's a long way away from me. Not relevant across the city, across the world. It's not. It's literally, whoever you are, sitting right here in this room, watching with us online, it is literally right here in your life. The word is leadership. You are a leader. John Maxwell defines leadership as influence. And you may not have a company with hundreds of employees, but you have influence. You've already led people this morning in your life. You've already influenced them. We influence by our words. We influence by our actions. As a matter of fact, I'll just share with you as we get started to kind of put this up on a tee. I've been trying to remind myself of some important things here as I'm trying to apply this. And it's real simple, show up. Because after all, we can't influence anybody if we don't show up. Slow up, right? That's the next thing. Because if I'm going too fast, I can't really engage and, and, and influence the people around me for good. Shut up. That's the third thing I tell myself. Because when I'm the one who's jabbering all the time, I don't really learn anything. And then serve up. Each of us has opportunities. I woke up this morning next to somebody who I influenced with my words and my actions. Maybe you saw at the breakfast table some little someones who you influence with your words and actions. You certainly influenced people as you got here with your words and with your actions. Now, here it is. This, is. this is why what I'm talking about is so important. This is what a follower does. A follower of Christ leads using their influence to nudge people toward Jesus. And it's so relational. It's all relational. And so many times, Mother Teresa actually said this, we get so preoccupied with doing great big things for God and as she said, the secret's not doing great big things for God. It's doing really little things for God in a great big way. So today we're going to talk about a story that Jesus brings us. My goodness, the time that he is spending on earth at this point when we pick up in the book of Mark is coming to an end. But his words, the teaching, the drama, the pace, the energy, it's coming to a crescendo. It's almost as if the disciples and Jesus were literally preparing for the battle of a lifetime. But they weren't going to fight the way that most people fight battles. They weren't going to act the same way most people act when there's something this huge going on. The disciples wanted one thing. Jesus knew the right way was another. And so they continued to work it out as a family, as a team. And in this passage that you and I are gonna talk about this morning, 
Jesus is explaining to them, not just once again, what his plan is, but how they're going to take their influence and fall in line with what he wants because living for Jesus is enough to give our lives to. So let's look together. Here we are at Mark chapter 10. Now remember when we talked about, we had a whole series on the Bible director's cut. I've mentioned to you that many people believe that Peter influenced the, the book of Mark and that most of the book of Mark are Peter's firsthand recollections and, and whether they are or not, it's an interesting thought and interesting perspective as I unfold, uh, and as I tell this story to you. They were on their way up to Jerusalem. Who were they? Jesus and his disciples with Jesus leading the way. And the disciples were astonished while those who followed were afraid. You might ask why. And I would say, well, it, it's, uh, it's explained to us earlier in this chapter and earlier in Mark, but they're talking right here about events that have already happened. So they're assuming that we know what's gone on. We don't know. It doesn't really matter for this point. Again, he took the 12 aside, these disciples, and told them what was going to happen to him. Now, I am a parent. I got two boys, two good ones. I like them. I remember when they were kids, when they were little, I'd sit them down to try to tell them stuff. And um, every time I wanted to have a heart to heart with them, it seemed like they got a massive case of ADD. I mean, the more important what it is I had to say to them, the more heartfelt, the more I needed 100% attention, the more important, the less they seemed to track with me. Almost like you're pouring out your plans for your family and your kid asks, hey, I'm, I want a glass of water. Or, you know, your dad, your eye looks a different way when weird kind of when you talk to me and, you know, just so distracted. We just want to grab them by the face and pull them in and go, no, 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 pay attention. All right? Jesus is telling them stuff that's so heartfelt. It's the stuff. It's important. It's personal. It's real. Disciples, I mean, just riddled with distraction. Jesus going one way. Disciples going another way. Jesus trying to have them meet in the middle. Jesus told them what was going to happen to him. He said, we are going up to Jerusalem and he said, the son of man will be delivered. The son of man is Jesus. Over to the chief priests and the teachers of the law. They will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles who will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. It's pretty gruesome stuff, isn't it? Three days later, he will rise. You would expect the disciples at this point to be paying attention to Jesus going, this is terrible, Jesus. What did you say? Slow down. What, what, what? You would expect them to enter into this moment with him. But just like a distracted child, and I'm not being hard on them, you and I were the same way. They're thinking totally different thoughts. You don't believe me? I'll show you. Then James and John, these are two of the good ones, friends. These are like, I mean, John's like the disciple Jesus loved. He's the one who is always pictured following Jesus around with an attentive sort of a gaze, always hanging out, always being where he's supposed to be. This is one of the good ones, one of the ones you never suspect would be distracted. Then James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came to Jesus and said, teacher, we have a question for you. But before we ask the question, we want you to say yes. We're going to ask you a question, but before you even know what it is, tell me yes. Now, it's not your first rodeo. It's not my first rodeo. If somebody, your kids, somebody else's kids, a friend comes up and says, listen, I'm going to ask for something, but before I tell you what it is, you have to say yes. We're not going to say yes. We're going to say, tell me what you want, right? But that's the sort of immaturity that is the foundation for this next little section of scripture 
And so Jesus, probably a little surprised by their distraction, probably a little unsettled by their audacity, he said, what do you want? They said, look, when all this is over, all this death, dying, crucifixion, arrest, trial, when all that stuff you're talking about is over, Jesus, one of us wants to sit on your right hand, one of us wants to sit on your left hand. Can you work that out? Now, Jesus is talking about laying his life down. His two disciples, two of the 12. I want one of the positions of power where I can make decisions and decide cases and impart the law. I want a position of authority and responsibility and military might. We want to be your guys, Jesus. We want to be your guys. Jesus, tell us yes. Can you see how different Jesus' mindset was from the mindset of these two disciples? Jesus was thinking heavenly thoughts. The disciples could not have been thinking any more selfish, worldly, earthly, human thoughts. Jesus says, you don't even know what you're asking. Can you be me? If Jesus said that to you, hey, can you do what I do? You'd go, uh-uh, sorry, no, Jesus. They didn't. These two guys, man, they're like, yeah, we can. We've been watching. Some of the miracles are a little bit hard. I'm not sure we could do all those, but yeah, I mean, we can, sure we can. At least we can sit on your right and your left. And I'd be like, Jesus, oh my goodness, Jesus would be like, you guys, you don't get it. But Jesus, he doesn't give up on them. He doesn't get frustrated. He doesn't yell at them. He doesn't tell them to grow up. He doesn't tell them to fall in line. He continues to talk to them. He said, you will drink the cup I drink and be baptized with the baptism I am baptized with, which means that you're gonna die the same way you're gonna suffer for your faith. There's some foreshadowing here, some forbearing. But to sit at my right hand or my left hand isn't for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they've been prepared. Now, think about the dynamic here. You are one of 12, you're part of a team. You, the other 12 disciples, following Jesus, figuring out who Jesus is, trying to decide, is this just an interesting teacher? Yep, interesting teacher, we'll follow you. Interesting teacher with some pretty good tricks. Oh yeah, we'll keep following you. Interesting teacher with some pretty good tricks and a really, really massive claim. Yep, yep, we're gonna keep following you. Wait a second. Interesting teacher, unbelievable miracles, a claim that he's the son of God, and we believe it's true. 12 people who should have been united around this who should have been marching the same direction. But in the middle of the 12, the team Jesus assembled to choose to put their boots on the necks of the others, to step on them and try to elevate them into positions of authority over the other 10 and everybody else. And they still had no idea what Jesus was talking about in the first place. So we have a problem here. And there are a couple things that I want us to, to discuss before we move to Jesus' solution that I hope will kind of set some context and I hope we'll begin to see the application we make in our, in our own lives. If you believe that I am for me, then you better watch out for you. If you believe that I am for you, then you are free to be for the people who are in your life. Now, I only use me because right now I happen to have a position of influence as the person up here on this stage teaching. 
the words that I say, I hope either nudge you toward Jesus or at least make you think, coming to points where you make some decisions. But you have to believe, you have to answer the question, what does Rick want? What I want for you is for you to be free from sin, free from your past, free from self, to discover your purpose, to live a life you've never imagined possible and to die without regret and to go home and hear, well done, you were good and faithful. And that's all I want. And the only way I know how to do that is to continue to nudge you toward Jesus. But it's not just a pastor job. Any of us who influence anyone else, which is all of us, have the responsibility to be for the other person, not wanting things from the other person so that they can be the people who God wants them to be. What's that look like? Well, it's how healthy teams are built. Certainly the disciples would have been better off not having to watch their back with all their coworkers, right? Or trying to stab them in the back to get the advancement and the promotion. But it's also how healthy marriages are built. Let me talk to you for a second. I'm married. I've already talked about that. Many of you in here are married. If not, perhaps you will be. Perhaps you were. But to me, marriage is a really important example because it's one of the things that I enjoy the most, but also one of the things I think I'm the worst at. And the longer I'm married, the more I realize how much influence I have over my wife. Now, it's not that I'm the man and I get to tell her what to do. I mean, that's, that's the opposite of spiritual influence. That's abuse and bullying. I influence her by my words and by my actions. And if I want from her to make me happy, fulfilled, to take care of my needs, then I can never be truly for her. I saw on Facebook, of all places, a meme that said a great marriage is two people who secretly go around believing that they each got the best deal. Think about what your marriage would be like if you truly didn't want something from somebody, but you were pouring into somebody so that they could be the person who God wants them to be. And man, if you're doing that with and to and for each other, my goodness, what a team you would make. It's how healthy families are built. Many, many times when we raise our kids, we raise our kids in our own image. We want them to be like us. We have a standard of achievement that we want them to reach. We have a value system that we impose on them. And we fail to realize that they're little people who are created in the image of God and God has a plan and a purpose for their life. And my goal and your goal as a parent is not to create kids that reflect well on you or me. It's to create kids who reflect well on God and fulfill their purpose in the kingdom of God. And let me share something with you. Only God knows what that looks like. You don't. So you are learning as you go. But can you imagine being the kind of parent that truly looks at your child and only wants something for them? For them to be men and women of God who contribute to the kingdom and find their purpose and find their peace and find their freedom and live a life and die without regret. Well, it's how healthy friendships are built. For the people who are closest to me, I believe that they don't want anything 
from me, that they want something for me. And they're willing to sacrifice as I am for them because there's something more important than self. It's also how healthy churches are formed. Really interesting here because James and John's mom even got involved in this. Different place in scripture, same scenario. It was a family clamoring for position, to rule, to be in charge, to create things in their own image for their own purpose. And the most, the scariest, the most subtle, most dangerous thing is when people try to create relationships for their own good and their own image, but call it God. We gotta be so careful. So Jesus is on it. Jesus knows. So he continues to teach. He called them together again. He's like, all right, family meeting, huddle up. Come here, fellas. Come on, lean in. Let's listen. I told you, it's easy to understand, hard to do, right? Leading to a point where we have to decide. Jesus called them together and said, we got to talk. You know those who are regarded as the great people in our world. You know those leaders of industry, those political superpowers, those people who have all sorts of people who have to say yes and nod their heads and do what they say. You know all those people. In this particular context, it was the Gentiles who lord over them, the high officials who exercise authority. Don't live like them. Don't live your life trying to develop an org chart where you're the man or the woman and everybody else is a supporting character in your life. He says, that's not the way we do it. That's not the way the kingdom is passed. That's not the way businesses, not the way friendships, not the way Christian churches, relationships, marriages, family, it's not the way it's built. It's built a whole different way. He says, not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great, according to God's standard, must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first, well, uh-oh, has to be a slave for all. Now, the word slave, there's six different words in the New Testament. All of them describe a function, and none of them are fun. One of them talks about how you're destined to spend life down in the hull of a ship rowing. All right, you've seen the movies and know what I'm talking about. But there's a relationship between these two words, servant and slave. Servants were people who chose to be in servitude to somebody. We all make a decision. The decision that I suggested to you at the beginning of our time together, you were going to have to make at the end. Is my life worth living my life for? Or is this Jesus' life me worth living my life for? We make a decision and we say, amen, I will serve the Lord. And then Jesus says, when you make the decision to be a servant, you also make the decision to be a slave. You don't have the right to choose I don't have the right to segregate. I don't have the right to say, you're my person, not my person. You're my person, not my person. That's my agenda, not my agenda. This is what helped me. This won't help me. Jesus says, you don't have the right anymore. You're giving up voluntarily your rights. And Jesus says, the way the kingdom is going to be passed, the way you're going to be elevated, the way you'll be successful is by giving your life away. So the disciples scratch their head and they go, my gosh, that's a thinker, right? As do you and I. And then he finishes it up by saying, even the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now we don't have too much time left, but I want to give you an example of this because um, this is sort of a, a difficult concept, but let's look at this next slide together. I want to tell you an opportunity you have coming up and this opportunity that you have coming up is going to help you and help me become servant leaders 
Because servant leadership is what leadership is about. You don't believe me? Well, scripture is my authority, but for some who like evidence that is in addition to scripture, there is a book that was written, actually Jim Collins wrote several books, but one, good to great, he studied leadership. Now he didn't go around as the expert telling leaders how they should act. He went around trying to find what he called his level five leaders. And he interviewed people around them, not them, to determine what the most important characteristic was of these phenomenal leaders. And he thought, he postulated, it would have been charisma and passion. And what he found was very interesting. It surprised him. And he writes in his book, great leaders embody a paradoxical mix of humility and professional will. But humility was the distinguishing characteristic for great leaders in business, great leaders in church, great leaders of their household, great leaders in friendships. They're ambitious, of course, but ambitious first and foremost for the company or for the kingdom, because we're talking about believers, followers of Jesus, and not out for themselves. Two things resonated with me, personal humility and professional will, ambition, drive. Now, there are two things that you have, opportunities that you have to discover a little bit more about how to become servant leaders to lead this way and one of the opportunities is going to be just continuing to do what you're doing right now, which is to come on Sunday mornings, beginning immediately after Easter, because I'm going to have a teaching series that starts that first Sunday after Easter and communicates for five weeks how it is that we lead through serving. Now, we don't focus on doing great things for the kingdom, but doing small things in a great way. Now, that's not enough because that talks about humility but Dan and Lori, I've asked them to lead on Wednesday evenings for five weeks a series in here in this room called Shape. And this is a way for us to discover the way or how God has created us and made us unique so that we're not shooting in the dark trying to figure out how it is we're supposed to serve, how it is that we're supposed to exist and live within this world and nudge people to the kingdom. And I cannot wait to be right here with joy listening and learning and rediscovering my shape. Some of you may say, well, I've done that before. Our shape changes. And by the end of the five weeks of leaning into this teaching series and being here on Wednesday nights, you will be much better prepared to use your influence in scenarios that will surprise you for the kingdom. Now, shape, spiritual gifts, gifts God's given you. Heart is H the things God's made you passionate about. Your abilities, they're not by accident. God's given you these abilities and this is how you might use them. P, personality. All of us are a little quirky, maybe a little weird. God uses quirky weirdness for good, for his kingdom. E, the E is experience. Now that's five weeks and it begins in about a month. So it seems like it's off in the distance, but as we conclude, we're gonna close. I wanna give you a very practical application. This is what I promised you. This is how you can change your life today. It's how things can change right now. When you leave this place, how you can live differently, how you can apply these things. And I'm going to very quickly read to you an illustration that Jesus gave in this same chapter of scripture and then give you two points and we're gonna go and we're gonna do it. In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. This is the story of the Good Samaritan. You probably heard it. I've taught it to you several times. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him and went away, leaving him half dead. A church person happened to be going down that same road. And when he saw the man, he tried not to notice. Some guy fell into some misfortune. 
poor fella, lots of people have fallen into misfortune. I can't be bothered. So what did he do? He skirts all the way to the end and he walks on by pretending that it never happened. You and I are so good at that. We ignore the need and the opportunities that are right next to us. So to a Levite who knew better, came to that same place, passed by on the other side. But then there was a Samaritan who should have hated this Jew's guts because culturally they were enemies. And as he traveled, he came to where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him because he noticed, right? He chose to engage. He had to ask himself a question. What's this man need and what do I do for him? But I'm getting ahead of myself. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper and said, look after him. And when I return, he left him a credit card. He said, I'll take care of whatever charges come up. Do what you need to do. Now, an illustration of a point. Jesus is speaking conceptually, but he's also speaking practically. And this is what I mean. Two things you and I can do. Two things beginning now. Here they are. Number one, ask, what can I do to help? Not what can you do to help me? What can I do to help? And I don't mean just ask somebody else that, because in some ways that's a cop out. It's nice when you say, what can I do to help you? But most people are going to say nothing, nothing, oh, nothing, I'm fine, I'm fine. It's a good thing to ask because it shows concern, but to do something because you know that you've thought it through and you know that's what they need and you're doing it just because. I'm going to do some small things in a great way. I'm going to lend myself to you for you and I'm not going to get anything out of it at all. And you're like, well, there, there's not much return on investment there. That seems kind of dumb to me. I mean, if I keep giving myself away, then what am I going to have left? And this is the cool thing about doing what Jesus tells us to do. You can't give yourself away. You continue to give and give and give and give and give, and he continues to build and build and build and build and build, and you find yourself more fulfilled, more free, more at peace, with more energy, more who you're supposed to be. And the more we try to pour out, the more God pours into us. And Jesus says, take it or leave it, it's the only way. So how would your life be different if you asked that question? What does my wife need? What can I do right now to serve her? What do my kids need? What can I do to serve them? What do my friends need? What's going on in their life? I do to encourage, to nudge them toward Jesus? What do my employees need? What do you mean? They're there for me. No, they're not. You're there for them. It's the only way it works. The more you're there for them, the more they're there for you, proven time and time again. What can I do to help? Puts us in the same position that Jesus placed himself because the son of man came to serve, not to be served, and he took on the form of, slave. Number two, look for opportunities to do for one person what you wish you could do for everyone else. This is where the philosophical side of me kind of starts to argue with the practical side of me. And I'm like, there's so much need, God. 
I can't take care of it all. I mean, one person's hurting, but after all, how in the world would I help everybody who's hurting? Because there's so much need in the world, I probably shouldn't do anything about it. And Jesus, as these disciples are standing at the, at the edge of this cliff trying to decide, walks up and pushes them off the cliff and says, just do for one what you wish you could do for everybody and your life will change. I'll take care of changing the world. And you know what? They did. And it took a while and it was messy and they failed. They had to ask forgiveness had to start again, but eventually, one step at a time, they got it, and they begin to walk with Jesus. Well, as we conclude, I want to challenge you that a follower of Jesus uses their influence intentionally. It's relational. It's always relational. Show up. Show up. Slow up. Nothing good is ever formed in a microwave. Slow up. Shut up. Talk to me, not to you. You talk to yourself. Don't tell the person sitting next to you. Just shut up and serve up. Father, thank you for my friends.